You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Hello and welcome to Drinks with God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. life issues that I'm not going to bog down the podcast with, I am now able to do a couple more of those again, which I'm going to try releasing a lot more regularly now. Anyway, today I am accompanied by some sort of mystery punch that my uh, roommate brewed for me. I'm going to ask him later what exactly is in this, though I do know that it involves some sort of, it's a lemonade-based punch that does involve mostly hard liquor, and also Carl Jung's psychology and religion. Now, Carl Jung, for a lot of people that have heard of the man, view his work as essentially the other option to Freud. And that isn't really the best view to have when it is regarding psychoanalysis, especially in the early stages of psychoanalysis, because there were other people that were out there splintering off from both Jung and Freud, and other people that were out in the field, such as Otto Rank. And in terms of uh, this particular book, Psychology and Religion, this book was originally published um, in the late 30s, so let's first talk about it in the context of where it sits as his work in history. This book is really interesting as a time capsule because it talks about, very offhandedly, it's all, not quite in the margins, it kind of, World War I has already happened, but World War II is about to start happening. And you can see him occasionally dropping hints as to what the world stage is doing politically, socially, and in particular, religiously. The whole book is, in a lot of terms, a study in what Protestantism is doing in Europe at the time. And he compares it to Catholicism, because obviously that's what you have to compare it to. Today, a lot of people would compare very specific kinds of Protestantism, either the Baptist Church, the Mormon Church, the Church of England, Catholicism among them, you know, just another page on the same level as Protestantism, to atheism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism. They would all be of the same level. This book only looks at the various splintering of the Christian faith, which I think is very 
interesting and very significant because while this is a book that a lot of people point to as a study in the universality of the human condition and all the various archetypes of the subconscious, it's looking just at Christianity and the subconscious of Christianity throughout the 30s. It is a narrative very directly to the reader. It almost reads as like one-on-one about the idea of how religion functions as a part of psychoanalysis. It is very, very readable. Not from somebody who has not read anything in the field, and not from somebody who isn't used to reading something that has been written in the 30s before. It definitely speaks with a language of its time. It uses the vocabulary typical to the 30s. It it frequently just drops random words in Greek and phrases in Latin. It throws in random quotes to poems, assuming that you know uh, the name of the author and the uh, the poem that it's referring to without giving any further reference to the material. But that is all just kind of an aside. The work in and of itself is very readable, and it's very good as a starting point to someone who is interested in the idea of religion and psychoanalysis going hand in hand, because they very much do. Because, as Carl Jung actually points out, any kind of psychology which touches upon the psychological structure of the human personality cannot avoid at least observing the fact that religion is not only a sociological or historical phenomenon, but also something of considerable personal concern to a great number of individuals. End quote. So, um, just to throw in another quote there from a few pages earlier to that one, religion is incontestably one of the earliest and most universal activities of the human mind. End quote. This whole book is Carl Jung's attempt at looking at religion as a facet of the universal human persona. The whole book in itself is trying to make sense to the layman. The idea of religion as a tool of the modern man to understand himself. To try and place the idea of religion, and not religion as in going to church every Sunday or Protestantism versus Catholicism, but religion in terms of understanding the unknown and trying to make sense of ideas that are beyond the grasp of science. Trying to make the idea that it's okay to not know the answers to everything a concept that's okay to the mind that was obsessed with understanding everything. And this was something that was very particularly a conversation point, a sticking point, for many people, not just in the 30s, but even up through to the atomic age. What is the psyche, after all? 
a materialistic prejudice explains it as a merely epiphenomenal byproduct of organic processes of the, in the brain. Any psychic disturbances must be an organic or physical disorder, which is undiscoverable only because of the insufficiency of our actual diagnostic means. End quote. After Protestantism took hold, uh, and the Enlightenment made the idea of free will and um, scientific thought the norm, not just in the upper class, but in the general population. The idea of intuition and having a hunch and just having thoughts that came from nowhere became kind of frowned upon. And even today, uh, that sort of thought process, any sort of mysticism, is very much out of vogue is a phrase that almost makes it too trite. This book was published a good 10 years into Carl Jung's uh, career in psychoanalysis, so he's got uh, a lot of experience um, and previous works that he is drawing upon with these essays, of, of which this is essentially a book of three essays, all of which are largely concerning one particular patient, which had been a patient who had been raised Catholic and is uh, struggling with um, problems which the patient doesn't believe to be religious in nature, but which Carl Jung does, or at the very least, which Carl Jung believes to be uh, theological in nature, and by which I mean in terms of personal theologic outlook in nature. Um, Carl Jung's own personal obsessions with the number four and his own personal reverence for Tibetan and Eastern philosophies just permeate the book the further and further you get into it, which is, of course, why uh, he comes off as a lot more worldly and um, modern than most other writers of the time to a modern reader. The book itself makes a very good point, um, and the book itself, I really should be saying Carl Jung, Jung himself, makes a very good point of trying to include as much as would be appropriate of the time for any European white male of the 30s to assume at the time a worldwide view. Um, anybody who is reading it today would probably consider a couple passages to be problematic, but he's fairly worldly. At its core, this book is very much Young's attempt at outlining in as straightforward and concise a manner as possible his theory of how and why religion is a part of the human mind and its proper functioning, especially in light of the modern man becoming more and more atheistic. Again, to quote Carl Jung himself on the matter, Religion is a relationship to the highest or strongest value, be it positive or negative. The relationship is voluntary, as well as involuntary. That is, you can accept consciously the value by which you are possessed unconsciously. That psychological fact, which is the greatest power in your system, is the God, since it is always the overwhelming psychic factor, which is called God. As soon as a god ceases to be an overwhelming factor, he becomes a mere name. 
His essence is dead, and his power is gone. Why have the antique gods lost their prestige and their effect upon human souls? It was because the Olympic gods had served their time and a new mystery began. God became man. And while this isn't his first work, and in a lot of ways it's not considered his greatest work, I think because he's making such an effort to be um, concise and to the point and has a very focused agenda here in this book, um, and because he quotes very specific passages from uh, one of his patients as opposed to cross-referencing several, I think that it's a very good introduction not just to Jungian psychology but to early psychoanalysis because Freud, for example, can be very obtuse. Uh, Otto Rank can be um, a little bit bogged down with technicalities. While I always tell everybody who has a problem with Freud that they need to read Karen Horney because she is not only going to be their champion, um, uh, she is very much a writer of her time, which is a little hard to read for people who aren't used to reading stuff from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Another writer for people who are interested in early psychoanalytic theory to read would be, of course, Ernest Becker, but he is uh, essentially just a good champion of Otto Rank and a critic of everyone else, if I'm being honest. Even though he did have some excellent theories of his own, he tended not to play them up nearly as much as his students did in later years. So this is a good book for someone to get started into uh, the field if they have yet to read any work from the period or on the subject, in my opinion, because it's a very quick read, just over 100 pages, and it is very straightforward. Um, I'm going to end with just this passage that I find particularly fantastic, which is uh, just Carl Jung's criticism of Nietzsche's own personal problems. Since the throne of God could not be discovered among the galactic systems, the inference was that God had never existed. The second inevitable mistake of the psychologism, if God is anything, he must be an illusion derived from certain motives, from fear, for instance, from will to power, or from repressed sexuality. These arguments are not new. Similar things have already been said by the Christian missionaries who overthrew the idols of the pagan gods. But whereas the early missionaries were conscious of serving a new god by combating the old ones, modern iconoclasts are unconscious of the one in whose name they are destroying old values. Nietzsche was quite conscious and quite responsible in breaking the old tablets, and yet he felt the peculiar need to back himself up by a revivified Zarathustra as a kind of secondary personality, a sort of alter ego, with whom he often identifies himself in his great tragedy, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Nietzsche was no atheist, but his god was dead. The result was that Nietzsche himself split, and he felt himself forced to call the other self, Zarathustra, or at times, Dionysus. In his fatal illness, he signed his letters, Zagreus, the dismembered Dionysus of the Thracians. The tragedy of Zarathustra is that, because his god died, Nietzsche himself became a god, and this happened because he was no atheist. 
he was too positive a nature to content himself with a negative creed. For such a man, it seems to be dangerous to make the statement that God is dead. He becomes instantly a victim of inflation, since the idea of God represents an important, even overwhelming, psychical intensity. It is, in a way, safer to believe that such an autonomous intensity is a non-ego, perhaps an altogether different or superhuman entity. Confronted with such a belief, man must needs feel small, just about his own size. But if he declares the tremendum to be dead, then he should find out at once where this considerable energy which was once invested in the, an existence as great as God, has disappeared to. It might reappear under another name. It might call itself Wotan, or State, or something ending with ism, even atheism, of which people believe and hope and expect just as much as they formerly did of God. If it does appear under the disguise of a new name, then it will most certainly return in the mentality of the one from whom the death declaration has issued. Since it is a matter of a tremendous energy, the result will be an equally important psychological disturbance in the form of a dissociation of personality. The disruption can produce a dual or multiple personality. It is as if one single person could not carry the total amount of energy, so that parts of the personality which were hitherto functional units instantly break asunder and assume the dignity and importance of autonomous personalities. Happily enough for the rest of mankind, there are not many individuals as sensitive and as religious as Nietzsche. End quote.